0: Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule. Their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is great news. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying. So, the first thing I want to point out here about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is not just a religious text, but that it is given to us as part of a narrative. So, remember, Matthew's telling us a story. And even the Sermon on the Mount, even though it's a sermon, it's a collected teaching. It's given to us inside a narrative. It's book-ended with narrative. The very beginning of 5, the very ending of chapter 7 is narrative. It's about where Jesus is, what he's doing. It's storytelling. And it's very important for us to remember. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what we traditionally call the Sermon on the Mount. And probably take you, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to read the whole thing. So here you have Jesus taking his disciples up onto a mountain and preaching a sermon for them. Which, according to, to Matthew, the way he sort of laid it out here is his first big discourse in Matthew, is a tentpole teaching of Jesus' ministry. And yet it only takes 15 minutes. Jesus calls all these people up to a mountain and preaches to them for 15 minutes and then and then what? You know? So what we could probably guess is that Jesus' sermon, if he if he only one time took people up on a mountainside and preached to them only once, his sermon was probably longer than 15 minutes. That's my guess. So what we're probably looking at here is, a, at, at the very least, a reduction of a great sermon. Perhaps Jesus had one sermon that he preached everywhere that he went, and this is a reduction of the, of the main points of that sermon. Perhaps Jesus uh, preached slightly differently everywhere he, went, everywhere he went, but he sort of hit on the same themes, and Matthew has gathered those and sort of amalgamized them into a single sermon that he's placed here. What we do know is that Mark doesn't really have any of this. Luke has a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, but breaks it up and spreads it out throughout the story of Luke, because that serves his purposes for the type of thing that he's writing. And so we need to recognize that here, with it all put together in one place, that serves some purposes for Matthew as well as the storyteller. So what are those purposes? Well, we got to ask again, who's Matthew's audience? So Matthew is writing to his contemporary first century Jewish brothers and sisters, people who have heard about Jesus and are waiting on a Messiah, but they're not sure Jesus is that Messiah. And Matthew is here to tell them not only is Jesus that Messiah, but their idea of what a Messiah is, is way too small. And Jesus is so much bigger than that. And so we've seen in chapter one, he gives a genealogy to show that The story of Jesus comes right out of the story of the Bible. It's just a continuation, really, of Scripture, the scriptural stories. We've seen in the continuation of chapter one of the birth narrative and chapter two that Jesus is, is very important. He's something more than human going on here. There's a lot of cosmic. There's a lot of metaphysical. There's a lot of divine attention given to his arrival on planet Earth. And then we've seen John the Baptist, who comes preparing the way for Jesus. John the Baptist, who also uh, comes preaching and, and baptizing, and talking about repentance, and saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And these sorts of these sorts of things. And uh, we see that he's a he's a great teacher. He has a lot of influence. But we see that Jesus is more important than even this John the Baptist. This John the Baptist that has followers all over the Mediterranean and has really stirred things up in the uh, spiritual kingdom in Judea. And so now here is this Jesus. Jesus uh, in chapter four, he, well, we see the baptism. Then in chapter four, we see the, the temptation and then the calling of the first disciples in the beginning of his ministry. And so now he takes the disciples and he goes up to a mountain. And one of the things that we've talked about so far in the previous lessons is that because Matthew is writing to his Jewish contemporaries, he's appealing to all the things that they already like and appreciate. So in the genealogy, we see him appealing to Genesis. We see him appealing to Judah. We see him see him appealing to Abraham, to David. And we talked about how he's really appealing to Moses. Moses is arguably the most important person in the Jewish faith. Moses is the person that speaks face to face with God as a friend. Uh, Moses is the person that goes up on a mountain and comes down with the law, receives the law from the Lord on the mountain. So a lot of important things about Moses. Moses is a prophet, lots of other things. And so what you see Matthew doing is paralleling some things with Jesus, with Moses, in order to say Jesus is the things that you like about Moses. Jesus is those things, but better. Jesus is those things, but more. Moses talked uh, face-to-face to God as a friend. Jesus was the son of God, right? That's that's an elevation from friend. Son is a big big one-up on friend, right? And here, again, we see... Uh, this thing happening now. We have Jesus going up on a mountain to uh, deal deal with the law. What we see here is um, in the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of things dealing specifically with the law, and I think we'll see some real direct parallels between him and Moses here in a little bit. Uh, another seemingly inconsequential uh, thing that that we've pointed out is the number five, and that the Gospel of Matthew is broken broken up into five discourses. And uh, I mentioned that before. Let me uh, pull up that list just real quick. So we've seen that there are uh, five prophecies that are alluded to in the birth narrative. So again, that number five is sort of pointing to Moses, like the five books of Moses. This number five sort of calls in the idea of Moses. So you've got the five prophecies. That are alluded to in uh, the birth narrative, you've got the five discourses that make up Matthew chapter 3 through chapter 24 or so. Before that, you have um, Jesus Jesus uh, arriving, birth narrative kind of thing, then going all the way to the Passion, which is the sort of part C. Part B, the middle section, most of Matthew from chapter 3 to chapter 24, are these five Discourses, or these five narrative and discourses, because you have some narrative followed by a discourse, and you have that happen five times, and you see the five here at least how I've named them. Um, so you have the kingdom announced, and so you have uh, John announcing it and announcing that Jesus is coming. Then Jesus shows up and he says, "Hey, I'm here." And now um, Jesus announces that that uh, the kingdom is at hand, and now. Through the Sermon on the Mount, he's really going to announce what all that kingdom entails. That's sort of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. And then the four remaining discourses, uh, ideas about kingdom authority, kingdom arrival, kingdom action, and the kingdom age, and what that's going to look like. And interestingly enough, these kind of parallel a little bit. The Sermon on the Mount, there's actually, as I see it, five parts to the Sermon on the Mount as well. And we'll look at those uh, here in just a little bit. So, uh, first up in the Sermon on the Mount, we have, of course, the Beatitudes. And Beatitudes begin with, blessed are, and then there's a blank, you fill in the blank, because or for, and then there is a reason that that group of people is considered blessed. Uh, or that uh, the people who do those things are considered blessed. This format, this beatitude format, is kind of a common format from the time. In fact, you can find other beatitudes even in the Gospel of Matthew, if I recall correctly. But here they're collected, they're put all together, and they have a certain focus. They're not just telling you about something about life right now, but they seem to clearly have an eschatological purpose. That's a big word, it's kind of a mouthful to say, but uh, the eschatology is the study of the end of things, the study of end times, the study of the end. And so when you talk about things having an eschatological purpose, you're talking about uh, things, day of judgment and beyond. And it seems clear that the Beatitudes seem to have a focus not just on life today, although there's some implications for that as well. well, we'll come back to that, but they seem to be written in such a way to focus on how things will turn out uh, at the end if these conditions remain the case. And in doing so, Jesus paints this really beautiful picture of this kingdom. So we remember before, we said the kingdom is not a place. It's not a building. It's not a castle. It's not even like Israel or Jerusalem. It's not some geographical place. Kingdom should not be thought of in the sense of a place but rather as a concept rather as the idea of the kingness of God the reign of God the fact that God is king that's what kingdom means when you see it in the new testament it doesn't refer to a place it refers to uh, the idea that God is king okay so it's a little less tangible than imagining you know Cinderella's castle as a kingdom but it's the right idea it's the idea that we need to hold in our mind. it's going to be very important for understanding the sermon correctly So, Jesus is now painting an idea of what this kingdom looks like. In other words, what does it look like when God fully reigns over everything? So, from the beginning, from Genesis, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives them choice. He gives them the choice to eat or not eat of the tree. He tells them not to do it, and they do it anyway. So, the fact that they are able to do it, even though God tells them not to, shows that he has given them a choice to do so. They choose to do so and suffer the consequences. And then there is this separation. So just like the first sentence of Genesis, that light and dark and the separation pulling the dark away from the light, we see that over and over again in the story of Genesis, this idea of constantly separating out the darkness from the light. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, when you can get all of the darkness out of life, what you have left over is the kingdom of light. And here's what the kingdom of light looks like. And so I would submit Jesus is really trying to paint a picture of wonder, trying to really paint a compelling vision for what God's reign will look like. Because there was a very small view of what God's reign would be. So when the Messiah comes, He's going to institute the reign of God. In other words, a son of David would sit on the throne in Israel, and they'd no longer be under Roman rule, but they'd be under the rule of some son of David. It was a very sort of geopolitical mindset, and it had some religious things certainly wrapped up in it. But even the religious things were, were religious. They were about religious practice. They were about worship in Jerusalem. They were about the sacrifices and the festivals. It really was not about God taking complete control over people's hearts and minds and lives. Now, certainly that could be impacted by what they expected, but they were not expecting a Messiah like Jesus. That's not what they were counting on. Their idea of a Messiah was was actually very small. And so Jesus is trying to open them up to the much bigger possibility of who he really is and the kind of reign that God wants to have over each one of our lives, over each one of our families, over each one of our churches, of our communities, over the whole world, all the nations, all peoples. Uh, all tongues, every knee. So he's really trying to create uh, a sense of wonder, I think, in the Beatitudes, because um, who wouldn't think that it's wonderful that you could see God? Who wouldn't think it wonderful that even though you're meek, you might inherit the earth? So as you read through the Beatitudes and you see these people that are blessed, uh, it it should really fill you with a sense of wonder. What does that word blessed mean? Well, uh, this idea of blessedness uh, was... um, uh, an idea of sort of being heightened, that you were being elevated, that you were being raised in importance, that you were um, being um, shown uh, if, if you were if you were blessed in life then you were um, uh, possibly uh, kind of famous, you were shown, uh, a, a lot of praise and attention. You were given a lot of credit for the things that you did. So to be blessed spiritually, to be blessed in the way that Jesus is talking about is about sort of seeking really renown with God. Be, the fact that you would be able to be known and be recognized by God. So if you're a first century Fisherman, if you're a first century, um, if you're, if you're, you know, you're a Jewish man who was rejected from rabbi school, you know, only certain people were selected to be rabbis. If you were just some Jewish nobody, the fact that you might inherit the earth, the fact that you might see God. I mean, this is, this is really filling you with a sense of wonder. And so the Beatitudes, as we go back and we sort of look at the text itself, you can just very quickly scan it and see. That it takes some very meager beginnings, but it gives them the kingdom of heaven, you know, the reign of God, that um, uh, a a filling, a a mercy, a seeing of God, being sons of God, belonging to that reign of God, calling it their own. uh, Really just filling with a sense of wonder. So. Then he moves on and he starts defining. Notice these next three paragraphs begin with, you are. So this is about really identity. And again, moving from the wonder of the kingdom itself, but really to the wonder of the citizens of the kingdom, right? When you are a full citizen of this kingdom, this is what your life will look like. And there will be some hard things as you may experience some persecution, but you shouldn't worry about that because it just shows how favored by God you are. And that, um, you are uh, the salt of the earth, and you're the light of the world, and, and those things have implications, and it means that you're actually important. Those of you who think you're completely unimportant, great news. You're actually very important when you're defined by your citizenship in the kingdom, when you're defined by uh, being a subject of the king who is the Lord, when you're defined by being one of those sons and daughters of God, your king. And so again, just really instilling a sense of wonder that moves from uh, ideas about the kingdom to ideas about myself. I start to redefine maybe who I am now by the things that Jesus is saying here. Now, next, he moves into talking about the law. And he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish But to fulfill, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So this was kind of a shocking idea, because the scribes and the Pharisees, um, some people had to do complaints about the Pharisees, and there were good and bad feelings about the Pharisees, but they certainly were people who committed themselves to what looked like righteousness. They they were committed to lots of righteous behavior and did lots of righteous things. And Jesus is saying, the righteous things that they do, unless your righteousness surpasses these guys... Um, you'll never get in. Well suddenly that sense of wonder uh, appears like maybe maybe this has been been dashed a little bit but he's going to go on and he's going to explain what that means in the section that follows. One more important part about this um, as Jesus talks about what he's talking about here is the law, right So again, this is a callback to Moses right as he's talking about the law but he's talking about it for one particular reason which is jesus and his followers therefore were really uh, accused by those first century jews of ignoring the law sort of being anti-law anti-moses anti-jew because there were so many gentiles they were baptizing gentiles bringing them into the faith including them in worship this was huge no-no you know to a jew and so they really considered Christianity, in a lot of ways, to be anti-Moses, anti-the law. And this Jesus, their Messiah, must be a false teacher because he's anti-the law. And so Matthew makes a very important decision to put this right here at the beginning. After painting this picture of wonder, he comes right out with sort of the first argument against Jesus's teachings and 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 the way, as it would be known in the first century, those who followed Christ, Uh, for Jesus to say, now I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking that I'm going to tell you, get rid of the law. But actually, I'm going to tell you the opposite. you got to fulfill the law. you got to meet everything that the law demands. you got to be even more righteous than those who are accusing us of being anti-law. And so this is a way of Matthew dealing with this uh, for his hearers. It's a way of dealing with it for us. But uh, it's also a way of, uh, again, connecting to that idea that uh, Jesus is a better Moses and it sets up the next section, what uh, is called the five antitheses. And once again, there's five. Uh, some people will say that there's six, but there's two that really go together, and we'll look at those. And so there's five antitheses. So once again, you have that number five that is pointing to him um, being a better Moses. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take the common understanding of the law and he's going to break it open. Get rid of the religiosity and get at the heart, get at that kernel of truth inside what the law is about. And so, kind of think of the word winnowing. So, when you take uh, wheat, you know, and you uh, winnow, when you, whenever you winnow grain, Takes the chaff and all the, the the dust and all that stuff and blows it away, and the heavy grain, the part that you really want, the meat of the grain, uh, is what is left. And so that's what you see Jesus about to do here. He's going to winnow religiosity until what's left is the truth, and what left is the real law. Okay, and so Sermon on the Mount is not undoing things from the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus says, "What I'm doing is I'm clarifying the law. I'm giving you the real understanding of the law because how it is being enacted." and our day is not right. So once again, you have the the five prophecies, you have the the five discourses, and now we have these five antitheses that you will see in the text. And again, I'm not going to read these just for time's sake. You can uh, take a look at them after we're over. Many of you are familiar with them already. But uh, Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you. Now, wait a minute. Thou shalt not murder. Where is that? Well, that's from the Old Testament. That's the law. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Is Jesus saying forget the Ten Commandments? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you've heard it preached, thou shalt not murder, and all of the type of preaching that goes along with that sort of idea, right? When you hear thou shalt not preach, you get a certain idea based on the teaching that you've heard. But I'm here to tell you what that really means. So Jesus is not saying, yeah, murder is fine. That's clearly not what he's saying. What he's saying is the teaching that you've heard about this particular law, you've heard the words, but I'm going to tell you what it really means. So the fact that these are antitheses doesn't mean that he doesn't believe the first part, but what it means is the teaching in the first part has not been full enough. That's why he says, I've come to fulfill. I've come to fill it full. I've come to fulfill the law. So he says, you've said, you've heard, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't hate. Because when you hate, you're you're destroying yourself and you're destroying the other person in your own mind. That's the same as murder. I mean, the only way you end up murdering somebody is if you hate them first. So if you murder, you're already on your way to darkness. You're already on your way to sin. You're already walking away from the light, walking away from the Lord, walking away from the law and walking towards lawlessness, selfishness, sinfulness, evil, death, The two that kind of go together uh, both deal with adultery. And so there's one about lust actually being adultery, and there's one about divorce uh, leading to uh, adultery. And you can look at those for some of the finer points, but we're going to include those together because they're really about adultery. They're about the idea of, of marriage and sexual relationships and essentially saying, hey, you got all these messed up notions about divorce and sexuality. And some of these ideas were permitted or even practiced by people like Moses and Abraham. But I'm here to tell you the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. God made man and woman. He gave them to each other. It's God who invented marriage, not Abraham. It's God who invented marriage, not Moses. It's God who invented marriage, not Pharisees, not the lawmakers. It's God who invented it. It's God who gets to define it. And he is the place that we must look to understand what this is about. And any deviation from that is essentially committing adultery, even when it's just lust, even when it's just in your heart. Because again, just like the hate that leads to murder, that lust is pulling you away, is taking you down a path that is leading to sin and death, away from light, law, Lord. The next section is about oaths versus just being honest. And so uh, again, this is getting into some, some theatrics about taking oaths and being um, very dramatic about the things that you are going to testify to and apparently needing to do that since maybe people don't, don't wouldn't believe you if you didn't do it, right? And so Jesus is saying, hey, just do what you say what you're going to do. Just let your yes be your yes, your no be your no. People will believe you. Um, you've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye, right? Once again, this is the law. This is the Old Testament law. However, the way it was being used in the time of Jesus was not the way that it was intended when it was spoken, when it was written. The idea, eye for an eye, was meant as uh, not as a concession, but rather as a holding back. Oh, he took your eye? Well, you don't get to chop his head off. Sorry, you only get to take his eye. What fairness? He took, he took your eye. Okay, you don't get to kill that person. You don't get to poke out both of his eyes. He took one eye of yours. You only get to take out one eye eye of his. It was meant as a holding back to keep revenge from constantly escalating until uh, where else could it lead but death. Uh, Even just beginning with a harsh word, you wind up in death when everything continues to escalate. And so the way it had changed by Jesus's time and the way... Um, a lot of people may try to use this now, is to say, oh, well, you took my eye. I now have a right to take your eye, which goes completely against the entire meaning of the law in the first place. This is why, um, even though it's not scriptural, you've heard the phrase, uh, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I think that's something that Jesus would agree with, even though it's not the words of Jesus. Not because the Old Testament is wrong, but because the idea is that You're not justified in retaliating. The idea for eye for an eye was to hold back, was to keep justice at the level of fairness and nothing beyond that. You don't get to retaliate. You don't get to have revenge. You don't get to take more because uh, something unjust was done to you, which was obviously a a frequent practice. People left to their own devices. You punch me. I'm going to stab you, right? That's the way uh, it typically works. All we got to do is turn on the television and watch current events to see if that's the case, right? And so Jesus says, you've heard eye for an eye, but what I'm telling you is you've got to have relationship. You've you've got to show grace. You've you've got to be willing to lose in order to save the thing that matters. And he talks about different kinds of relationships in this section. And lastly, he talks about hating enemies. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And he says, But I tell you, love your enemy. And he talks about the differences in hating enemies versus loving everyone. And so he doesn't take the law and turn it upside down. Instead, he turns it inside out and he shows what's inside the heart of these laws, the reason that they were written in the first place and how they can be filled full. And I want to show you something. And this is just something that I kind of did uh, very quickly. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sure other people have done better versions of it or uh, may have things to say against it. That's fine. But as we look at these five antitheses, I can't help but notice the first one is about murder or honoring other people, particularly fam- family members, as it says, you hate your brother, right? The second one is about adultery. And it's also about uh, idolizing uh, either love or relationship or sexuality. Uh, the third about oaths is about um uh, Bearing a true witness, being honest, and also not about, about not taking the Lord's name in vain. Not, not having to use God's name in order to swear an oath because you're a dishonest person. Uh, the, the fourth is um, a, in, about retaliation and revenge. is really about stealing and coveting. Uh, wanting something that someone else has or wanting to take something from someone else to teach them a lesson. And the last one really is about trusting in the Lord, just the one true Lord, and uh, trusting that His word and His law is good. And if you look at these, this really summarizes all of the Ten Commandments. Even the law of the Sabbath is summed up in the idea of trusting the Lord. That was the point of the Sabbath, was that you could take a rest. Remember, originally it was that you would not collect manna, trusting in the Lord that His goodness would last through the the holiness, the Sabbath day. And um, that idea of holiness is, of course, all throughout these ideas. So in these five antitheses, it may be that Matthew has picked these, or it may be that these are the ones that really, Jesus really talked about all the time, because they really touch on the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten. They really get at the heart of the law and show exactly what they were meant to be. You know, uh, in our country, Our constitution is written in such a way. It's not written by the government to tell the people what they are allowed to do. It's the opposite. It's written by the people to tell the government what they're allowed to do. Right. And no more. Right. That's the way our constitution is written. The idea in, uh, we have a bill of rights, but that doesn't grant you rights. It just enumerates the rights that we have and prevents our government from infringing upon those rights. Right. And, um, so, so many times today, people get in arguments because there's two different viewpoints on this from a political standpoint. Some people look at this and say, we have these rights, and this defines what the government gets to do. And other people look at it and say, well, this Constitution gives you these rights. Right? The very similar thing was happening with the Ten Commandments. They were given as a gift to people to say, here's the way that you get to live. That same picture of wonder that Jesus paints in the Beatitudes um, certainly must have been the... the uh, and it certainly must have been wonderful to see in Exodus nineteen the glory of the Lord coming on the mountain with fire and 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 smoke and and lightning and all these kinds of things, uh, the earthquake and all this uh, really magnificent things that they would have seen the, the the pillar of fire the cloud of smoke, God living in the tabernacle among them these things certainly were wonderful and yet somewhere along the way they went from holding uh, this gift which was the law of the Lord something that was meant to be a blessing. To Israel, so that Israel could be a blessing to all people. Remember the uh, promise to Abraham that he would bless all nations, right? And somehow, by the time of Jesus, um, the law had turned into a bludgeoning tool that was used to keep people in their place and uh, to keep people acting in a certain way. And Jesus came to turn the law inside out so you could see its heart once again. So the wonder and the winnowing. And so now we move into the next section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 6. And he looks at uh, how to give, how to pray. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is here, which I wish we had time to dive into, but we really don't. Uh, How to fast. And in all these things, he's talking about the hypocrites and what the hypocrites do. And uh, it's very interesting. What he's talking about here in this whole section is he's really talking about worldview. And so he's talking about the hypocrites, and he actually uses theater language, uh, wearing of masks and, and announcing, you know, calling out, getting attention from uh, audiences of people, and uh, even the trumpet that announces someone's arrival. I mean, this is things that were done in the theater. If people would have understood what he was talking about when they heard it. And he's talking about people who are performing, people who are play-acting, in a religious way versus people who are actually doing this in their heart. If they're actually doing this in their heart, then there was no need for all the theatrics. They could just be, they don't have to act, right? And so Jesus really is getting here into this idea of worldview. So he says, look, here's the wonder. Here's the way the the, the kingdom will look when it's fully here. And we've got to winnow the law in order to get there, because you think by doing these things, That's the way you're going to get there. But I'm here to tell you there's something deeper that you haven't gotten to yet. And there's these two worldviews that are competing. And one is what the hypocrites do. And one is the thing that you ought to do. The thing that I'm telling you to do, Jesus says. And so there are these two worldviews. And you have to notice, and we'll maybe say more about this in a minute, but you have to notice that it's not lost people versus saved people. Jesus's dichotomy is not the world versus uh, the people of God. When he's talking about the hypocrites, these aren't people who don't pray, who don't give, who don't fast. It's the way in which they do it. It's they do it in a religious way. This isn't about lost people versus saved people. This is about religious people versus disciples. And Jesus is making some really clear distinctions here. If you are play acting, if you are doing the religious things and thinking that that's enough, I have some news for you. And this news is not good news. But the good news is there is a worldview. It's called discipleship. In that worldview, you do these things privately and intimately, and you will see that kingdom of wonder that we painted before. And so really all of Matthew chapter six is about this idea of worldview. First, it's the worldview you need to eschew. It's the worldview you need to get rid of, get rid of the hypocritical worldview. Then he comes down here and talks about uh, this idea of treasure, storing up treasure, and what goes in your eyes, and serving money, being greedy. And then he talks about uh, anxiety. Don't worry about your life. And he goes into some details on that with some really beautiful language and consoling language. And he ends this section here with um, really the the, sort of the penultimate statement here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the reign of God in your life. Seek that out first, the reign of God and his righteousness. Again, righteousness would have been a big theme that would have been important for first century Jews. And Jesus is letting these first century Jews know what you think as righteousness, these acts that you do, that doesn't cut it. No, you've got to go beyond that. You've got to get to the heart of that. You've got to seek the reign of God in everything, even in the deeper inner things. When you do that, then you will understand what his righteousness really is. And then all this other stuff will start to take care of itself. And so Jesus shows what the worldview of discipleship looks like as opposed to the worldview of the hypocrites, the worldview of the religious. So then we move into Uh, chapter 7. And here in chapter 7, he starts out talking about uh, the way. How are we going to do this? How are we going to get there? The first thing he says is what not to do. Well, don't judge. You're going to be judged by the same standard that you judge others. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but you don't notice the plank of wood in your own eye? Something that probably would have been humorous in Jesus' time, maybe not so much to us, but that's okay. Things lose in translation over time, it's all right. Certainly the concept is funny if you think about it played out. But Jesus really is talking about the way. How do, you, how do you get this worldview? If you're seeking his righteousness, how do you do it? Well, the first thing, the first thing that you must do, the first step to seeking the kingdom of God, to seeking his righteousness, is don't assume You're not one of the religious people. Don't make the assumption Jesus isn't talking to you. Most of you listening are people who have grown up in church, who have been part of church for a long time. You consider yourself Christians. One of the big lessons of the Sermon on the Mount must be, hey, this is about religious people versus disciples. This is not about lost people versus saved people. And just because you're a part of church, just because you're doing a ministry, just because you're taking communion every Sunday, just because you were baptized, just because you don't cuss too much, just because you stopped drinking, whatever, just because you've done these acts doesn't mean you've made it, doesn't mean that you've arrived, doesn't mean you've crossed the finish line. Don't assume you're not one of the religious people. That's the beginning of chapter 7, and these are hard words. This is tough teaching. Don't assume I'm not talking to you. Jesus says at the beginning of chapter seven, "Don't assume you're in that second group of uh, people who are in the kingdom already." So how how are you going to do it? Well, you got to keep asking. You got to keep seeking. You got to keep knocking. When we find this section in the Gospel of Luke, Luke even adds the words uh, that um, how much the Lord will give you His Holy Spirit, and Luke really drives the point home that this ask. Seek, knock, that this is not just about anything that we want in life, um, asking for a, a new car or a better job or a spouse, but rather this is specifically about asking for God's kingdom, asking for God's righteousness, asking for the Holy Spirit to be a working power in our life. Got to keep asking for it. You've got to keep seeking it. You've got to keep knocking. That means you're always working on it, okay? Okay. So instead of the word way, I almost put the word work. I just didn't want you to think that this was like a works based thing. That uh, because that's what Jesus is trying to preach against. Okay, it's not the outer works. Okay, the outer works are signs that something on the inside is happening. You'll have those outer works if you're doing the thing on the inside. But if you only have the outer works, well, I didn't murder him. Yeah, but you hated him his whole life. Might as well have murdered him. He'd been better off if you'd murdered him. Seems like right. So what Jesus is saying is it's the heart. It's the things that 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 go on, that matter. And you're always going to have to work on those. You're going to have to keep asking. You're going to have to keep seeking. You're going to have to keep knocking. That's the way. That's the way to seek the kingdom of God. That's the way to seek his Holy Spirit. That's the way to seek his righteousness. In the final section of chapter seven, what we see are some warnings. And uh, we'll go to the text. And so uh, we see that uh, entering the kingdom is going to be done through a narrow gate, that it's a difficult road, that there's going to be false prophets and ravaging wolves along the way, but you must notice them by their fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Where have we heard that before? John the Baptist was preaching that just a few chapters earlier. And so Jesus is carrying on that teaching and saying uh, that you will recognize people by their fruit. Then he finishes with uh, this idea that not everyone, this is so tough, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This is tough teaching. Jesus doesn't say many will say on the final day, "Lord, Lord, who are you? I never heard of you." That's not what they say. They say, "Wait a minute, God, we did a bunch of stuff in your name, didn't we? Feed the hungry, didn't we? Drill those wells, didn't we? Feed those orphans, didn't we? Uh, free the prisoners, didn't we? Stand up for injustice, didn't we? Do all these things and do them in your name?" And Jesus is going to say, "You stopped asking." You stopped seeking. You stopped knocking. You were not in my kingdom. My kingdom kept moving, and where did you go? You were going in the other direction. You kept things locked away in your heart that you never allowed me in. So I'm sorry. I don't know you. What a painful thing to have to hear for people who think they have lived their whole life in service to the Lord, only to find out Jesus doesn't know them. So don't let it be a surprise. Don't think that you're going through the actions of a Christian life and that that is enough. You must be known by Jesus and you must know Jesus. And in order to do that, just like you know anybody else in your life, you must be vulnerable, you must be open, and you must let God reign into the deepest, darkest parts of your life. I remember a story from uh Robert Fulgen book. I think it was uh, it was on fire when I laid down on it. Uh, but uh, it's a story that I told at my high school graduation in a speech that was uh, not quite as long as this lesson, but almost. And it recounted the story of um, a teacher who, when asked the meaning of life, talked about being a young boy in Nazi Germany and finding a broken motorcycle mirror and took a large shard from that and rubbed it on the concrete until it was round and safe to handle. And he would keep it in his pocket. And even when he was hiding, He would make a game out of seeing where he could shine light from the window into the darkest, deepest corners, farthest away corners. And he decided to make that his mission in life, to shine light into the deepest, darkest places. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is intended to do. It's intended to go into the most secret places and put God's reign there where it has not yet reached. In the first century world... Kings like Caesar, uh, their their arrival would be announced. In fact, entire cities sometimes were built or rebuilt for the arrival of uh, of a Caesar that would show up to survey his kingdom. And Jesus is doing a very similar thing here in saying the king, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, God who reigns is coming and is in some ways already here. And we need to make everything the way that he wants it because he's the one who Who reigns, and he needs to see the things that he reigns over when he gets here. So, uh, Jesus concludes his sermon with this interesting story a little bit of a parable, the two foundations. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, or some versions say puts them into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation. Was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. And so at this final warning, they are astonished. It's kind of a shocking ending, right? This house coming to a great crash. Can you imagine ending a sermon like that nowadays? Preacher ending, you know, with this destructive, violent image and then just walking off stage, you know, going back, to sit down and song leader gets up and starts singing. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre, right? I always wondered, you know, I always thought oh, if I was preaching this, because obviously I know better, right? If I was preaching this, I would reverse that. You know, talk, oh, if you don't do this, the house will crash. But if you do this, here's the way things will be with you. Kind of ended on an up note. Give people some positivity, some encouragement. always confused me why Jesus ended on this uh, very violent, kind of a downer ending. Well, we're talking about storytelling in this podcast, right? We're talking about the storytelling of Matthew. Why would Matthew end the sermon here? And I think this is a really fantastic storytelling tool and one that I came to see the value in once I started reading a writer by the name of Flannery O'Connor. We're out of time, so I don't have time to get into a lot of Flannery O'Connor, but she was uh, from the deep South. She lived in the the forties to the sixties. She died young. She had lupus and was in a lot of pain towards the end of her life. She never married. She was Catholic. So to be devoutly Catholic in the deep South in Georgia was a very kind of a strange thing, but she was and her stories were often very dark and very violent and very surprising and shocking. And one of her first stories that I read was a story called Everything That Rises Must Converge. And I'll I'll put a link in the comments uh, after the live stream is over. And it doesn't take very long to read. It's a short story. And just to summarize the story, it's about a a man kind of looking down his nose at his mother as they're on this bus ride, and and something happens— and at the very end of the story, his mother is is sort of uh, astounded and disheveled from the event that's taken place. And she collapses on the sidewalk and he tries to wake her up. And the story ends with him calling out for help and, and holding his mother, waiting for her to wake up. That's the way the story ends. <laughs> I, was, I was like, am I missing part of this? What is it? I wanted to throw the book across the room. It made me so mad. And before I could even process my anger, my phone was in my hand and I was talking to my mom. I'd called my mother. Mom was, Wow, well, we were two questions into a conversation before I even realized I was talking to her. It was so bizarre. And you could tell mom was like, did you call for a reason? Why are you, what, what's happening? And it, later I realized this story did something to me. It created an injustice in, in my heart that the only way I could write it was to pick up my phone and call my mom. That's a powerful story. That can do that. It's a powerful story that leaves you with such a sense of the world not right that the only way for you to get rid of it is to write it yourself in the real world. It's like a song stuck in your head, and the only way you can get rid of it is to play the song and you listen to the whole thing, and kind of get it out, right? And I think Jesus' sermon does that. It paints this picture, the law turned inside out so it can be fulfilled so the kingdom of God can be fully realized in the world, so that God can fully reign over every aspect of life, over every aspect of you and your heart, no matter how difficult it might be. God paints this picture that if you put these things into practice, you'll find that kingdom. But if you don't, something dire awaits. And at the end of that sermon, don't you aren't you left with this feeling of, I must make this right. Very, very powerful storytelling. At the end here, you see where it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, you'll see this, guess what? Five times in the Gospel of Matthew at the end of every discourse. It's letting you know that's the end of this section and we're moving into a new section. It's kind of like chapter breaks, act breaks. And it also mimics... Uh, similar places in Deuteronomy and uh, Numbers uh, referring to Moses when Moses had finished saying all these things to the people, that sort of thing. And so we're uh, left here with some ideas on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to show you sort of the five sections as we've talked about in this evening. The Sermon on the Mount, you have the wonder— the winnowing, the worldview, the way, and the warning. I've quickly given these names and someone could argue that this is not a good organization of the Sermon on the Mount. That's fine. But I think in just these broad organizations, when you look at these these five things that we have here, and I've put them in this this sort of V-shaped structure so that you can see the chiastic structure. We've talked about chiasms before when we were looking at Genesis, when we were looking at numbers, at the storytelling of the Old Testament, beginning, middle, beginning, that the thing in the middle is what changes everything. And what we see here is Jesus painting a picture of wonder that's contrasted with the warnings that he gives at the end, that it's going to be difficult and there's going to be some, some um, uh, things along the way, but we've got to make this decision. And he's, as he's winnowing the law, To show, uh, here's the way you've been doing things, and we've got to get rid of all this nonsense. Uh, You can contrast that with the way. Here's how we're going to find how to do the heart. Here's how we're going to find the righteousness, the actual kingdom. And in the center of that, in the center of that is worldview. The thing that changes everything is worldview. When you can completely change how you view the world, rather than, and this is the big change, do you live in the world and you add God to the things that you do? Kind of like salt on your meal? Or are you the salt? Is it God's world that he has added you to? Right? So it's our worldview that must change. It's our worldview that must turn around. It's our worldview that must repent, turn around. This is part of the repenting that must happen. We must change our hearts and minds, as some versions say. We must turn around and have a different worldview. There's no aspect of life in which God will not reign. God reigns everywhere. First century Jew says, God reigns in Jerusalem. Jesus says, God reigns everywhere. The first century Jew, the Pharisee, says, God reigns in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus says, God reigns in the secret of secrets in the corners of your heart. And no one can escape it. And so when we're left with these ideas, when we're looking at these ideas of worldview, what we're left with is religion versus discipleship. We're asking. Are we just religious people? Are we Christians, you know, part of a club, do the things that the club requires and maintain our membership? Or are we disciples? If we're just religious, then there's, you know, a little bit that we can do every week and feel like we've met our quota for doing Christian things for the week. But if we're disciples, there is no area of our life that God doesn't want to come in and change, and cut, and tweak. So it might be bad news that the Sermon on the Mount is about you. If you find yourself being hypocritical, if you find yourself hating or worrying. Anybody been worrying the last couple of months? Hey, I have. Scripture says don't do it. That's a, that's a place where God needs to come in and work on me really needs to go to work in that place of my life. I have other parts of my life that I'm scared to let God come in and work on because maybe it'll be too hard or maybe I'll get embarrassed. Or if we're honest, sometimes I just don't want to right now. But God's going to reign over everything. And if we're going to hold back pieces from him, one day he might say, you wouldn't let me know you. I wanted to know you, but you didn't seek me out so that I could know you. So when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Jesus is saying, come with me, hear the things that I preach and let me change you. Let me transform you. All of us have aspects of our life that God is not yet king over. And if we are disciples, we must commit to letting the word of God Pierce those sensitive places so that God can come in and heal them. This is difficult for us to do. This is difficult for us to think about, but God is good. God is merciful. And so I'll leave you with this question. Where's an aspect of your life where God does not yet fully reign? You've heard the words. This last story of the Sermon on the Mount is not about someone who hears and someone who doesn't hear. It's about two people who hear. One of them puts the Sermon on the Mount into practice, puts the way of God into practice, puts the worldview of God into practice. And that house stands firm through everything. But the second house does not put them into practice. You've heard the words will you put them into practice? Because if not, your house is doomed to crash. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.